0: We know of new methods of attack
1: Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, comrades, companeros Welcome to another edition of Fifth Home Podcast The greatest podcast in human history Better than uh, any others And nobody's trying to get us off Spotify Are we on Spotify, Matt? Okay, good. Try to get us off there, because it'll give us a lot of attention. Because you know what, this is going to be an offensive podcast right now. So get prepared for your letter writing (laughs) campaign, because we're ready to go. Camille Foster is not here. I am Michael Moynihan from Vice News and various other things, including the fifth column podcast, which you probably figured out by now and Matt. Welch, whose name, he's in Fullerton, California right now, uh, and his name on the screen says Matt fucking Welch. So Matt wow. fucking Welch is here uh, at large at Reason Magazine, and uh, somebody goes around and hangs around with fifth column listeners drinking throughout the country. You're doing that again this weekend, aren't you, Matt?
2: Uh, yes, at an uh, undisclosed LBC. LGBT uh, location. location? Um, no, LBC. <laughs> <Okay>. uh, <laughs> Was it lesbian, by
1: and communist? What is the C? Listen, you
2: know, <laughs> if you were a real America, you would have watched the Super Bowl, yeah, and noticed that. the halftime presentation. Um, was, that was an homage to my hometown, in many ways. Well, that and Compton, maybe Compton was a little bit more. Uh, yeah, yeah, sure. It's, it's, they, it's they, another part of
1: California that you really want to be paired with, Matt. <laughs> it's, it's the it's the neighboring town. <laughs> I, know. Know. I know. What do you want to do? That's why you're so tough. Um, uh, so <laughs> what's been going on? Like, the shard's not going to drink itself. Yeah, I know you're drinking saying, Chablis, right? uh, in California, I <laughs> Martini and Rossi, Osti Spumati, whatever the fuck you're drinking. Hmm. Thing, we, we've been away. So, but we have been doing a lot of stuff. Um, as I, as I teased a little bit in the written description for the, the, uh, thing that we recorded two nights ago is that we have some big news coming up and this is all part of our slowness, I would say. Um, And also the fact that Camille just moved back to the East Coast and uh, is having another baby in like, what, four days or something? Is that why he's eating so many edibles? Oh, my God. I don't... Dude, before we introduce... It's been a while since
2: I had a baby, but I wasn't eating. I just want
1: to say to our Patreon listeners, you have gotten 100 plus amazing episodes and then one that was kind of a little weird, which was the last one. (laughs) (laughs) Because <laughs> Camille tells me about a quarter of the way into it, well, he's like pounding White Claws like a sorority girl. He's like tangerine yeah. White Claws. And I was like, oh, what are you drinking? There's a tangerine. Lady. He's like, I don't even know what flavor it is. And I was like, what's going on with this guy? And then he let uh, let on that in the chaos of um, moving coasts and moving his family, he decided to eat an edible and didn't tell me until we started recording. So. Because had I known, I just would have pulled the cord and said, "I think we're going to have to cancel tonight."
2: <laughs> well, I think this just goes to show that once he's so he's now on the East Coast, and once the three of us are in the same room together uh, again, that we do the four twenty show like as long. Dude, than, that was uh, that was why
1: there's been there's been a lot of demand for that four twenty show. This was an example last night of why it should never happen. Yeah, that was one imagine person. What's now imagine yeah. me and then you, and then Camille in front of microphones, all stoned. It's just not going to work. It's really <clears throat> not going to work.
2: Do you at least get like introspective and
1: paranoid? I don't get I don't introspective know. or paranoid. Um, I can't, I'll start thinking like I've, if I get really stoned, I'll just, I, yeah, I might. And I'd be like, oh my God, what's happening? Like, is that so Rob? I had something like that. I just, I'd be start freaking yeah. out and like not know where I was. That, that's my transition by the way. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, that's a good
1: one. we've am so high. Is that so rub. Time, And here he is. Um, you know, because Camille's out, we decided that we need to replace him with somebody better. Um, Blacker. 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 Uh, <laughs> and the gayest man in Washington, D.C. Uh, James, quote, Jamie Kerchick of the Brookings Institution and the author.
0: No, I'm not I'm not, a, I'm, not I'm not a Brookings Oh, they
1: fire you? Oh no, my god.
0: No, no. Hate no, crime. No. no. Homophobia. <laughs> I'm at I'm at I'm at the uh, at the Atlantic Council.
1: Oh, at the Atlantic Council another one of those. Oh, so now we're uh, going to talk about yeah. you know, your yes. your I'm a trilateral <laughs> Davos man quarterly. Like, <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> but Jamie is the author of the forthcoming The Secret City, The Hidden History. Of Washington, D.C.? Yep. Or of gay Washington, D.C.? Gay, gay Washington. D.C. No. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, so, Jamie, as a homosexualist yourself, um, this book is going to rip the lid off of Washington, D.C. What we didn't know is that it's even gayer than we thought. Is that is that the kind of premise of the book?
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, in <laughs> ways that you could never imagine. In ways that you could never imagine.
1: So you wrote it with Steve Gobi, um, um, who... <laughs> <laughs> look it up people get back to us uh you
0: know, i tried to i tried to track him down he's did very you? elusive and hard to find
1: so he he's now no, tell no. because i brought that up tell me tell everyone who steve Gobi is because he's always stuck in my my head and did you actually try to track him down
0: no 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 no.
1: but he was a he we was know, i mean
0: you, it was the barney frank scandal promise, yeah
1: he was a male pro- prostitute and he was yeah. uh it was i think it was the washington times it broke that story, wasn't it? The
0: Washington it? Times broke the story. Actually, I, I write about this in the book because uh, it was part of a a whole summer worth of gay scandals, actually, in the summer of 1989. Um, there's a whole chapter sort of on these gay scandals that the Washington Times was sort of stoking. Mm-hmm. Um, and Steve Gobi was, yes, he was a male prostitute. Um who was being sort of kept, I think would be the term you would use. Um, by,
1: <laughs> might be the term uh, by, that you use. By Barney use. Frank.
0: Yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, by, by Congressman Barney Frank, who was my congressman, actually. In yes, yes. Up.
1: Do, you, do you out anyone in the book, by the way? I don't want to give too much away. I do.
0: I, I do. I do. I um, do. No one extremely famous, um, but not that many people, no. Um
2: uh, like living the people book. you're outing or dead people? No, no,
0: no, 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 The only people who are outed are, are dead.
2: I mean,
1: he's um, not Michelangelo Signorelli. He's not, he's not. <laughs> yeah, right. right. <laughs> That's, <laughs> but the book, <laughs> I have seen the, um, the cover of the book and it has a very mm-hmm. generous blurb on the front from one George Stephanopoulos, who I believe comes mm-hmm. out in the blurb, doesn't he? Uh, do, do I get that wrong? <laughs> I, I might have that wrong. Matt, I think that's yeah. wrong. Should I edit that out? Because I think it's wrong.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: No, he's actually married to somebody who is, uh was on Seinfeld uh, and is very funny. His wife is hilarious. Yes. Honestly, she's yes. very funny. Yes. Um, so we decided that we're going to replace Camille tonight with you for a couple of reasons uh one is that we, we had too many straight white males we needed to mix up a little bit um so now we have a straight person matt a gay person jamie and then there's me uh nobody knows and <laughs> no one will ever find out um so <laughs> a couple drinks and sometimes people find out um but you wrote a piece that you tweeted from i think 2017 uh foreign policy
0: Oh, and you were no is, is this is this the warmonger one
1: no, this is the prescient is, one about oh. about Ukraine.
0: Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, sorry. The
1: got, warmonger one?
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I got attacked for another piece from 2017 by a certain podcast called Chapo Trap House where I I wrote about the term warmonger. And you know, you're you're a historian uh Moynihan and I I wrote about how the term warmonger was basically popularized in the 20th century by fascists and communists.
1: Yeah. Um, you wrote this and, recently? And
0: well, no, no. I retweeted it because people were using the word "warmonger" a lot in, in recent weeks. Yeah, and so I just retweeted the article, and then one of the guys on Chapo Trap House attacked me. But and then all of their followers, um, you know, who have all these bizarre Twitter avatars with like pictures of animals pooping—that's kind of like no. what they do on no. Twitter—started um, attacking me, and it <laughs> kind of proved my point because they're a bunch <laughs> of communists, and they were calling me—they were calling me a warmonger. So. I think, said, I think they said i they thought they thought they were owning me, but I think they were owning themselves yeah anyway, sorry i
1: i haven't is it i haven't listened to the podcast, I know it's quite popular, um, and I know they're they're a bit red, but um the no the piece that I was talking about was the one where you imagined yeah. a future yeah, and that future yeah. was you gave the date of two thousand twenty two <laughs> i believe may of two thousand and twenty two and it was
0: may, uh, it was may ninth
1: yeah yeah you uh you you predicted. Uh, you predicted that uh, Russia would be the same revanchist power, but uh, one that has aggressively taken over part of Ukraine. Talk about the piece uh, and and how what you got right, what you got wrong.
0: Well, I, I wrote it because my I had a, my first book coming out, The End of Europe. Um, and I just wrote this sort of long speculative fictional essay imagining Europe in five years. And it was a worst case scenario. I mean, it was, you know, Marine Le Pen becomes... The president of France and Jeremy Corbyn becomes the prime minister of Britain, and um, Victor Orban declares uh, basically war on Romania because ethnic Hungarians are being oppressed in Slovakia, and basically all the, all that can goes wrong goes wrong. And it wasn't you know I, I wasn't being entirely serious, or I I wasn't like a like a geopolitical forecaster. The point was basically to say you know here is what here's what Europe could look like if all these things go wrong. And when one of the sort of plot lines in the piece uh, was, yes, was a, was a full on Russian invasion of Ukraine marching all the way to Kiev, which I still don't think is going to happen. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I actually had kind of put it out of mind because I've been, you know, busy on other things. Uh, and then all, and then just the past couple of weeks um, it sort of resurrected itself and yeah. And I tweeted it yesterday.
1: So what do you what do you make of what's happening now? I mean, there have been pretty some pretty dire pre- predictions that haven't come to pass. But that said, Russian troops have moved in to territories, uh, you know, occupied by pro, quote unquote pro-Russian forces, right. and of course, Russians have been there uh, as little green men for some time anyway. So it's right. nothing too surprising about that. But right. where where are we now? In the sense that, like, I look at the the. You know, conversation about this online. And it's kind mm. of depressing to me to see how it all lines up based on local partisan politics. I mean, you see Candace Absolutely. Owen, one of the smartest people in America, saying, you know, uh, <laughs> it's just brilliance, just really Really brilliant. I'm waiting for the collected works in a leather bound edition of Candace Owen's psychopathic tweets. One of which today I don't have it in front of me. I, I could probably, I could probably pull it up and I probably should pull it up because I, I did text it to Matt and, uh, and Camille. Did you read this one, Matt, this uh, from, from the great. If it's a text from can, you. Know. Yeah. I think that's the problem is I, so here's the text, text from the great uh, Candace Owen. I'm translating this from Russian, so it's going to be rough. Um, <laughs> I suggest every American who wants to know what's actually going on, there's an asterisk there, actually going on in Russia and Ukraine, read this, what? What are you going to say? Some history book? No, no, hold on, wait. Read this transcript of Putin's address. As I've said for a month, not a month, just as I've said for a month, NATO, under direction from the United States, is violating previous agreements and expanding eastward, capital letters, we are at fault. Jamie Kerchick, what do you make of the great, uh, speaking of uh, geopolitical forecasters, uh, Candace Lawn, what do you you make (laughs) of that sentiment, which is not, she's not alone in thinking this.
0: Well, I mean, that Putin speech was, and I've listened to a lot of Putin speeches. I mean, he sounds like a lunatic. I mean, it's the craziest, and you know, Matt, you've been following him for a long time. I mean, it sounded like the craziest thing just on a psychological level he's ever delivered. You know, crazier than the Munich speech from 2007. That was kind of the first, you know, real moment where he really kind of declared war on sort of kind of the you know the post-war liberal order or whatnot. So, of all the Putin, um, you know, all all the works of, of Vladimir Putin that you would cite as being, um, you know, uh, worthy of paying attention to, it was very strange that she decided to do that. Um, but yeah, it is really bizarre because and then because then you know, you look at the Democrats and you go on MSNBC and they sound like Joe McCarthy, you know um, <laughs> yeah. so it's just like it's, it's just a very strange the way that the you know if, if, if you've been fo- if you've been following kind of the Russia debate in America, it's just very bizarre, not bizarre because I guess everything now is filtered through partisan politics, and there's very little consideration given to actual you know, facts on the ground or, or, or global events or ideology. And I mean, in, more, in even, more agreements even, yeah, violated.
2: Ahead. or that's, I mean, this is, this is a common uh, thing that you hear from anti-interventionists from wherever they land uh, this week on the spectrum. What is the agreement that NATO violated right. by accepting? Well, yes, I've, I've, yeah, in, yeah. Like there, there isn't any, it's amazing. Like yeah. people are, there's still like journalism, like, Oh, The nation or whoever has ripped the lid off the real, you know, the real betrayal, you know, new documents show, dude, there are no new documents. There is no new documents. This stuff was extensively unlike, you know, the period under communism was documented because that's what the the West does. It documents a lot of what it's doing uh, diplomatically, not the secret dirty word shit, but like that stuff has been super well documented. There is no agreement that was violated. They're just no, look for the it. Extent, you think we wouldn't no, be I hearing mean, it? You think it wouldn't be enumerated? Right.
0: In right. the, the extent to which that we relitigate this issue of NATO enlargement and that being to blame. I mean, when I was on my first book tour for the end of Europe five years ago, I got this question at like at every book event I did, every interview. Like, didn't we promise the Russians that we wouldn't expand NATO after the fall of the Soviet Union? It's like, no, we didn't. But the extent to which that has sort of seeped into – public consciousness in the United States, I find, to be really uh, indicative of kind of how successful the Russian talking points are. Um, because as you say, it's completely false. You know, were there sort of, you know, were, were, were there conversations between certain Western diplomats, between James Baker, or, you know, Hans-Dietrich Genscher or Helmut Kohl, and, and Gorbachev and Yeltsin? Yes, there were conversations about this. But as you say, there was no agreement, it would have been written down, it would have been codified. Um and people also forget, you know, there was there there was talk about Russia one day joining NATO. There was, yeah. You know, back yeah. in the ni- back in the 90s when when Russia was not, you know, uh, the dictatorship that it's now unfortunately become, um this was a, this was talked about. This was talked about somewhat seriously, you know, down the line obviously. Yeah,
1: you know, th- this is the weird thing about about, you know, and it is the baker conversations that everyone clings to and that's that's you know, again, not codified into into an agreement. But the the other thing about this and, is And
2: also about Germany, about, about a yeah, reunified uh, Germany uh, and what uh, it could – Yes, be. and by the way uh, – Which everyone had different treaty obligations. I mean, Germany was an occupied – a Western and Eastern occupied – kind of protectorate after the end of world war II, mm-hmm. It's at it totally unique status in the world. And remember, and, um, and remember that and remember than 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 Margaret
1: Thatcher year. was opposed to the reunification of Germany, uh, yes, <laughs> which is, was, which yes. is kind of hilarious. But if you, if you look back at this stuff, um, we're having these, it's kind of these history wars everywhere you go. So every conversation that you have about school books in America, about, um, you know, mm-hmm. the 1619 project, this is about relitigating points in history. It, that, that is the case not only with NATO. And by the way, there's, there was no, this was not a specific moment of, oh my God, they're actually going to join NATO now. That, that, it, this was not that moment. It's just the excuse being rehashed again. And obviously not of, of grave concern, because if you listen to the Putin speech, there's, the NATO stuff gets a few lines, but it's just this blathering on in which he blames the Bolsheviks, by the way, for the existence of yeah. um, Ukraine and says that if you want to, the the Russian, I I don't know, there's not an English version of decommunistify or whatever he was saying. If you want to do that to places like Ukraine, you have to basically give Ukraine back to Mother Russia because it was Lenin. He calls it Lenin's Ukraine, and it's actually a Leninist thing. I mean, if he wants to go that far, he would also realize that in places like Crimea, the reason that there aren't more native uh, Ukrainians in Crimea and there are more Russians was because Stalin deported them all. So if we want to, we want to get actually serious about all of these little wrinkles of, of of history. But the bizarre thing about this is that you know this is what all of these people who really know nothing about about this stuff and haven't followed it at all are now litigating this in on Twitter, on television, on Fox News. I mean, on Fox especially. It was so funny to watch a clip of Laura Ingram and the the uh, Lower Third was all about the dreaded neocons and what the neocons are doing. Yeah. Somebody who who once identified herself as the most hawkish person on the Iraq War, and these people turn on a dime. And it's because... Donald Trump was being accused of, of being a Russian agent and Malcolm Nance is in a spider hole on MSNBC. So I have to be on the other side. The level of stupidity in this debate is pretty shocking. And on the other hand, on the other side of this, like we haven't seen a lot of civilian deaths um, so far, but that doesn't mean they're not coming. And what happened in I mean, how many were there in 2014? Uh, a lot. I mean, it was like 14000 or something like that.
0: No, no, Well, since, no, no, since 2014, there have been about 14,000 people. Yeah, that's what died. I meant.
1: Since from the beginning, yeah, been, yeah, 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 yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. There's, there's been a low-level war going on in eastern Ukraine for eight years. People don't realize that, you know, and there's a, there's casualties every other day. Yeah. And it's been like that for almost a decade.
1: So what is the talking point now? I mean, you see people, the, the unity of people on the left and the right here saying, number one, it's not our fight. You, Jamie, are probably pretty frequently identified as a neoconservative or somebody of that persuasion. Or warmonger, I guess.
2: A
0: warmonger. A yeah, warmonger.
1: Uh, what I call him. Ma- I
0: identify. I identify as a warmonger. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah, yeah. That's your pronoun, warmonger. Um, yeah. So you're a gay warmonger. That's uh, should be the name of the episode. Read. That. <laughs> so, what do you make of, the, of this argument? I and mean, the argument is is that well, this is not our fight. Now, there's a lot of ways of responding to that because it doesn't look like it's going to be our fight either way. But that just seems to be the most prominent simplistic argument is let's not yeah. get involved in these skirmishes that aren't our own. Something to that, though, isn't there?
0: No, because I think having peace and security on the European continent has been a pretty important American foreign policy uh, objective since the end of the Second World War. You might even say it's the most successful foreign policy achievement of the United States is uh, a Europe whole for and at peace. And we've had two world wars break out over border disputes in this part of the world. Um, this is basically where these have started in the past. And so, yes, I think, uh, the United States has an interest. Um, no one's proposing that we send American soldiers. That's a, that's a red herring. Um, but to hear Tucker Carlson be like, well, why aren't, you know, why do we support Ukraine over Russia? Why don't we support Russia? What's wrong with that? Um, it's really just the most disgusting moral equivalence. Um,
2: and it's, and it's and not even, even the, uh, the, the this is not our fight. It's it's the like why not why not what do they used to say during uh, during the Iraq War? It's like he's not anti-war. He's on the other side. Mm. Um, mm. That's that's where that's where that's going. It's like it, mm-hmm. it, I'm I'm fine with the expression to an extent of this is not our fight because it isn't literally right. our fight. Mm-hmm. Okay, I agree with that and and but like you know to the definition of warmonger and the way that it's used right now, there is. Who is out there advocating? Maybe you and, and Applebaum and nobody else <laughs> and not even you guys are, are actually advocating war. It's like this super weird, phony argument. Like, oh, they're well, doing the it. Only, the drums of war. They're beaten again. Like, no, they're not anywhere. Well, the, only guy they're
0: who's mongering, the only guy who's mongering war, exactly, is Vladimir Putin, is the Russians. Hmm. Um, so for these people to call themselves anti-war is just a total it's, – it's, it's absurd.
1: Well, it's a weird, it's a weird comparison. I mean, I understand the invocation of Iraq and lessons learned and things like that. I mean, they're obviously very, very different situations. And I suppose the situation would be more akin, I don't think it's very similar. Um, Although Russia was on the other side of this too, was the Balkan intervention, uh, slightly closer than it would be in Iraq, when it became a Spanish civil war for Islamists, you know, people coming. And this was something that was not as uh, anticipated as it maybe should have been. Um, but you know, it's 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 a weird situation to be in where nobody is actually thinking in the anti-war side, uh, the fact that the, the war that is being waged right now is being waged by Russia. It is actually happening. People are crossing borders, sovereign borders. Mm-hmm. And yes, despite the fact that they were privately quietly annexed, in 2014, 15, and so on. Of just, I make that a large swath of dates because Russian troops have been in there with insignia ripped off their uniforms and everything. But that just because it existed before doesn't mean it's okay now. Well, they already did it, so it's fine. We don't care about the Germans coming across the border to the Sudetenland because they took it in 1938. You know, and now it's 1939. But to your point about this, is that about the history of this sort of thing. People were talking about Czechoslovakia a lot today people who are hawkish on this and saying Russia's doing a bad thing. You know, I generally agree with them, and I don't care that I disagree with them on a lot of other things, particularly on you know, the Trump-Russia stuff. It doesn't bother me because I take these things issue by issue, as most normal people should. Right. But it's actually you know worse right. than that because it's not just the land. I mean, that was the first one in 1938, but nobody's pointing out in 1939 that Danzig, Gdansk, Dansk is Deutsch, as they would say, G- Danzig is German, was the other thing, was ethnic Germans there. Everywhere there was mm-hmm. ethnic Germans, and they called them the Volksdeutsch, yes. like Volksdeutsch everywhere. Yep. So they had Volksdeutsch in Slovakia. They had them, you know, in—well, in, mm-hmm. in, in the, well, I'm saying what they are now, Czech Republic and Slovakia—everywhere all the way east, you know, I mean, uh, Volga Albanian. Germans— I mean the, the famous Russian Volga Germans, etc., and that of course the other thing that I, I can't believe nobody's really citing is 2008 in Georgia, two republics again that were made "quote unquote" independent republics. And by the way, who recognizes those independent republics? It's amazing. This is when you know what side you're on. Who are the people that recognize those? Syria, Syria. Nicaragua, <laughs> Nicaragua, <laughs> Venezuela. I think Cuba, Vanuatu, Van, It's probably Vanuatu. They're Vanatu. always
0: no Cuba. I don't think Cuba. I don't think Cuba does. Cuba it's didn't one even of do... these islands. One of these small islands. It, it, it I wasn't don't think Cuba. Does I'm not sure.
1: So yeah, like, it, it was it was uh uh Nehru, Nehru, yeah, and and Nehru. and and, uh, and and Syria. But that's those are the people that recognize Cuba was even like that's a little much. Although yeah, we see Cuba and Russia coming even closer together now, and Russians mm-hmm. saying today. Mm-hmm that they're going to start forgiving some massive debt that the Cubans have owed the Russians for many, many years because of their stance uh, vis-a-vis Ukraine and saying that they support their policies. But this is the same thing that happened in South Ossetia and Abkhazia, saying these are ethnic Russians, these are people. They started giving them passports. What did they do the other day? Started giving Russian people passports. This is the same plan over and over again. It happened including including pre-Putin. Right. Which I think yes. is important. It happened in
2: Abkhazia, pre-Putin. It happened in Transdenistria, mm-hmm. which I always mispronounce on purpose, um, um, pre-Putin. It's as if there's a Russia nationalist thing that is really strong in a country that lost its empire and that it's a big part of its politics. You should have Alexander um, Dukin on the
1: podcast it, like other people do. And
2: it also <laughs> predated any talk of the expansion of NATO, motherfuckers. Yeah. Like that, that, that's, that has been a thing that they've been doing the entire time. And that has impelled conversations about the expansion of NATO, which makes absolute total
1: sense. If you're going to look at, well, this is, go ahead. I was
2: going to say this, the, the other, the other dumb talking
0: point that they trotted out for a while was, well, how would America feel if Russia stationed, you know, troops in Canada and Mexico? I mean, you heard Tucker in the whole kind of, um, you know, Trumpy right-wing anti-imperialist crowd trotting out that. Uh, and it's like, well, you know what, Mexico and Canada would never feel the need to join a military alliance with Russia. <laughs> um, and if they did, then like, then, you know, then maybe America would be getting what it deserved. Because I mean, it, it's such a, it's such a preposterous comparison. And they say this with a straight face. Yeah. Um,
1: the, the thing that,
0: that, e- that if, somehow... we had,
1: if we had taken Quebec, and um, maybe part of Saskatchewan, yeah. And stationed troops there, and then I'll, I'll four, say, forty years previous, we on. starved them to death too in a great in a great well, genocide <laughs> with,
0: with what 's going on with what 's going on right now in Ottawa, I mean the massacres on the streets, the you know the women and children being <laughs> being slaughtered by Justin Trudeau left and right I mean we do have to seriously consider. Um, beware operation. sarcasm
2: yeah. you better hope uh, moynihan edits this one quick <laughs> yeah because yeah true yeah that's right now in fairness in fairness to our anti interventionist friends uh i'm old enough and kerchick isn't to remember uh, uh, uh what happened when like there was some soviet business in central america and we freaked out we were like that's yes. bad we've got to do weird things to stop it um granted evil communists were all around and it was there it was bad but we did have a, a knee-quaking moment. Um, but also, that's back when there was a Cold War and people found use to take sides, and there just isn't anymore. I mean, China's trying to have its influence in a lot of far-flung places, but it's just not the same thing at all. Um, and so there's no reason anyone would want to – why would you cozy up with Russia if you were fucking Guatemala? Like, there's just no percentage in it. Like, it's not going – and I, I can't imagine us getting too upset about it. It'd be more like, what the fuck are you even doing over there?
1: Jamie, what do you th- think of the response so far? I mean, there's been some criticism of Germany, as you as you can always criticize in these situations. Uh, but they, the Nord Stream two pipeline is now on hold. Um, it's on hold. It's they're not canceling it. But you know, that's a that's a something that we didn't know would happen. And I think there was a point at which a lot of people didn't expect it would happen. And that's a that's a pretty big victory in some ways for for. Um, well I would say not for the Biden administration but for the the alliance of decent people who don't want Ukraine yeah. to be to be carved up by a revanchist imperialist power.
0: No it is I just hope it's not too late and I also just I'm not sure to what extent actually economic sanctions will work on Putin cuz like we were talking about earlier this is something that's really deep and psychological with him. He feels his country is not getting The respect it deserves on the international stage, that it's been wronged, that it was humiliated, um, that the collapse of the Soviet Union is the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century. And it's almost like there's no reasoning with someone who really believes this. And I think the only thing that will stop him is some sort of military deterrence. Um, Because he doesn't care about the average Russian person and their livelihood, right, or their well-being, the extent to which sanctions might might hurt them or hurt their pocketbooks. You know they've they've been enduring that for the past eight years since the annexation of Crimea. So, I, you know, I I support these sanctions. Obviously, they should be stronger. But I'm a little pessimistic that they'll uh, do the trick in terms of preventing further bloodshed.
1: I mean, as far as humiliation is concerned, too. I, I mean, let's make something clear here. And it, you're feel free, Fifth Column listeners, to. Write angry emails. I can anticipate the ones that are being written as we are talking right now. So just take a break and listen to the whole episode before you finish that email. But the humiliation thing (laughs) drives me absolutely insane. To your point about the average Russian, the average Russian isn't humiliated, nor do they really give a fuck about this sort of stuff. I mean, it's just, it's more, uh, uh, you know, what they're looking for an economy that is not reliant entirely upon uh, oil and gas and that isn't. You know, look, everybody says it's a, I mean I think I even said it in the in the Patreon podcast that you should listen to uh, that it's a sclerotic economy. you've been hearing this though for ten years, fifteen years i don't know how sclerotic it is because it hasn't died yet, mm-hmm. and if you go to Moscow, there's a lot of money flowing around. It just doesn 't flow down to the average Russian if you go outside of of the nice parts of Moscow um, that exists in a lot of countries in the world. People can stay in power. Despite that, all you have to do is look at Nicolas Maduro in Venezuela. Uh, that, just, that just isn't going to be that much of an issue in, in bringing down a regime, particularly because it's such a hammerlock. And this, another thing to point out before we get back to the humiliation thing is that do understand that there is not a free media in Russia. And that is very important in the sense that, yes, there is Novoya Gazeta and there there is echo moscow which has been kind of neutered in a lot of ways to the radio station but if you look at state media and look do yourself a favor and 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 go to tv1 and you know go to half the, the newspapers is vestia which is you know another, again a government organ um and see and just do a google translate and see what the the general tone you're not going to get everything exactly right but you're going to get the tone of things and you're going to see that it is an echo chamber of i mean imagine if you know the fox news that people get all mad about the fox news is this this echo chamber for for like 60 70 year old conservatives who who become tea party types and it transfix them imagine that the whole entire media was that way the entire media there was no other option that is it and that's what you're dealing with so the public opinion is very difficult to gauge in in an authoritarian country like russia i mean you have somebody who's a impressive opposition figure who's still impressively releasing uh, videos while in jail. His team is, is that's an Alexei Navalny, and, you know, poisoned, arrested. This is what you get for being, for even sort of mild criticism. He's not, you know, organizing riots and organize, organizing blockades and, and things like this. But the, to the humiliation point, you deserve to be fucking humiliated. You are the Soviet Union. You took over what percentage of the world at one point, and I keep on pointing out that uh, Christopher Andrews' book, the second book in the Matrokin Archive, is called The World Was Going Our Way, and that was, like, 1970s, where there was, it was a really, really great time to be Soviet because you had far-frung places like South Yemen that were Soviet. Nicaragua, then in 79, becomes a Soviet satellite. You know, Grenada's becoming a Soviet satellite. All over the world, the world was going their one, the non-aligned movement... was was in a position of power at the time, and you lost. Guess what happens when you lose? The people that you humiliated in occupation, you humiliated them. That is the nicest thing that you can say about it. It's usually you tortured them, you arrested them, you deported them, you put them in the gulag, but you humiliated them. Let's use that stupid world. But you did that, right? And then all of a sudden, they want some sort of protection. And they say, we don't want this to happen again. And you say, how dare you? How dare you offend those people? They were occupied, and they were occupied by a bloody regime, and the Ukrainians were starved to death in mass, mass numbers, in the millions. There is a film about this called Mr. Jones that you can watch, which is de uh, Holland, I think, made it. It's a, it's a terrific film. Mm-hmm. And there is Ann Applebaum's book. You can think Ann Applebaum is right or wrong about Trump and all this stuff. But read her book or Robert Conquest's book about it, and you'll understand the mentality of people that don't want 190,000 troops on their border. Seems pretty obvious to me. Also think
2: about the the notion of humiliation after World War II. There's a book out um, recently whose title I forget, but that talked about the uh, crazy period that's very underrated between 45 and 48. Because there was a lot of humiliation going on. There was a lot of, I mean, it, it plays big in uh, Czechoslovakia politics, because you had the Benes decrees of mm. basically, oh, you use Germans as an excuse? Sweet. Are you German? Mm-hmm. Fuck off. Uh, <laughs> are you Hungarian? You can also fuck off. Go go in that direction. There was uh, incredible amounts of population movement, and people died. There were some death marches going on after the war, because after all this ethnic cleansing had been used, and a- ethnic excuses had been used by the by the overlords, those Germans got humiliated a lot after World War II, and they deserved it. Um, we somehow only teach the humiliation after World War One as some kind of way to over-explain Hitler. It's an important piece of context for sure, and you know there's a, a proportional uh, or an argument about proportion uh, uh, after World War One, not just for Germany but for Hungary and some other people. Um, but there was a ton of humiliation going on after World War Two. And after the end of the Cold War, comparatively, not a whole lot. There could have been a lot of people expelled, a lot of Russians expelled from those countries. There could have been. Like, you know, uh, it's uh, Lithuania, right? It has the biggest uh, uh, Russian minority of like 20 uh, or 30%. No, no, they, they, they
0: have the smallest. It's, um, or Latvia, Estonia, Latvia, sorry. Latvia and Estonia have the most, yeah.
2: Um, Latvia, you could understand them ethnically cleansing Russians, not support it, but you could understand it as a concept. Of course, it would have been really stupid. They would have been invaded by Russia. So there's a lot of problems going on. But like, you know, that could have been a direction that these things went, which is, again, and I've mentioned it before. But in the early stages of expanding NATO, one of the preconditions was, and this degraded over time, sadly, was that if you want to join the club, you have got to solve all outstanding problems, any disputes about your territorial integrity, the borders around you, you have no problems with the neighbors, and you have no problems with ethnic minorities, uh, which was a sticking point for both Slovakia and Hungary to get in, because they were fucking not really good with each other in the early 1990s for a lot of those same kind of or reasons of, of overhang. Um, so there comparatively was not that much humiliation for Russia. The, the humiliation was internal. And Jamie's right. The partnership for peace was co- so called at the time because it w- wanted to be envisioned and the, the central Europeans were pissed off about this. It wanted to be envisioned as something that even Russia could join someday. Um, and they hated that. They're like, no, we don't want anything involved, um, involving that at all. So yeah, humiliation is, There's the comparative sense of it is all messed up. Um, We didn't actually humiliate Russia. Um, They humiliated themselves. um, And then Europe screwed up by not figuring out its own sense of non-America, non-Cold War, non-Russia security guarantees. I wish they would have. Life would have looked differently, but they just didn't do that.
0: I think the word, Michael, humiliation you use is very important because I think we underestimate the role to which humiliating their neighbors factors into Russian foreign policy decision-making and Putin's in particular, like that is a value in and of itself, like stomping the boot on the faces of like Ukrainians and Lithuanians and Estonians and Belarusians, like they derive a great deal of pleasure in this. And that like overrides questions of, you know, economic survivability or diplomatic isolation. Like there's just a sheer pleasure derived from doing that. Like that is a foreign policy policy objective. It's not rational. It's a very emotional thing. And I mean, you just contrast it with a country like Germany, right? Like Germany lost a war. Okay. And how, you know, how does Germany behave? Um, They've, they've learned different things from their experience than the Russians did. I think we'd all be, now I have my criticisms of the Germans for being too pacifistic, right? But I'd rather have that model. Of kind of post-war uh, adapting than the Russian one, which assumes no guilt, um, acknowledges no wrongdoing, uh, is sort of self-victimizing uh, and, and just full of this this horrible, um, really obnoxious sense of victimization and blaming everyone for their, for their own problems and, and projection, right? I mean, all these terms they use, the West is warmongering, the West is aggressive, the West is humiliating us, They're just projecting their own uh, cruel behavior onto their adversaries.
1: I mean, just people, I I said people are not even referencing the obvious parallels with what happened in Georgia in 2008. But, I mean, I don't even think anyone's really talking about the fact that Russian troops just intervened in Kazakhstan, (laughs) right? I mean, that was, what, a month and a half, two months ago?
0: Well, they were, technically they were were requested by (laughs) the, the... leader at the time. I mean, I'm not... You
1: know.
2: Yeah, yeah, Just the... the Czechoslovakia in 68. The shitty Congress dictator.
1: 56, right? Well, look, the Amer- yes, The Americans yes. did that, too. The Organization of American States were, were, I think asked for the U.S. to intervene in, in Grenada. I mean, there, you always have those... Fig leaves, Uh, mm-hmm. and I don't think anyone thought that was okay in 1983. The, those who opposed it, but you know,
0: are you kidding me? That was a, that was a great invasion, the best invasion of the top. Uh, the, uh, yeah, the, the, the grenade and invasion. Yeah, God they made a great movie. Wonders. Clint Eastwood made a great movie
1: about uh, about uh, w- a, a <laughs> biopic of Maurice Bishop uh, of the <laughs> heartbreak, heartbreak Heartbreak Ridge. Ridge. Heartbreak Ridge. <laughs> yeah, of the, the <laughs> that's my favorite <laughs> shitty communist splinter group is the New Jewel <laughs> Movement. And it's like, it's the, <laughs> it's the best. It's the best. That's what I thought the the vape company should have been called the new jewel movement. Um, mm-hmm. just probably don't know if anyone would get that joke, but, um, yeah, no, it's, it's a, it's a weird thing that when you see, you know, Azerbaijan and Russian troops have involved themselves in Azerbaijan in various capacities, same thing as, I mean, obviously in, in Syria, um, Russian troops are, are, I mean, the air force i mean how many people did the russian air force kill in the in the syrian uh, war in the past 4 or 5 years i mean it's a lot it's not a, it's not an insignificant number and i just find it funny that the anti imperialist cause is on the side of the most actively imperialist country involved in this in this conflict right now um mm-hmm. and you can say look the america's done x y and z and they've been they've been been bad about, y, about X or Y, and that being Afghanistan or Iraq. Let's just say that those things are equal. Okay, fine. Why is it that you want to allow somebody to be as imperialist as the United States as some sort of equality measure? It's like, well, no. Imagine if you say, okay, that was wrong. Let's make sure that doesn't happen again, and let's make sure it doesn't happen in any capacity with any foreign power, and that includes Russia. And it's an amazing thing that to to have these conversations about this that are so bogged down, mired in all of these fucking Seth Abramson shitty weirdo conspiracies yeah. that Donald Trump I mean look the the, yeah. the fact of the matter is is that the one thing that you can say about this and I'm I'm obviously not somebody who gives Donald Trump Trump any credit and I don't believe this is giving him credit but it's just a simple fact is that these actions against Ukraine happened under Obama's watch In Biden's watch, not under Donald Trump's watch. Mm -hmm. And presumably Donald Trump would have just said, go ahead, you know, go in. We don't care. We love you. And we hate NATO and we don't agree with NATO enlargement. This is the time to do it. Didn't happen that way, though. And this is after
2: um, uh, Biden and Obama and Biden in 2008 during the uh, Democratic National Convention. um, What was the big foreign policy conversation at the time? It was Georgia. It was we're all Georgians now. That happened right then. And Biden... Um, you know, said this would never happen on our watch, um, you know, um, as if and that that bothers me almost as much as as any other kind of American instinct and in all these things is this idea of omnipotence that somehow if we do X, that's going to change it or we didn't project enough toughness whatever that means. I know Jamie loves that shit, but I don't uh, <laughs> um, uh, like, you know, it's, it's, it's that it's our thumb is going to be the decisive factor on the scale, which is not an excuse to not try it to do as much as you can. But um, it's this notion that if you just get the right Americans in charge, then suddenly Putin's going to change his decisive behavior in a place that we're not going to send troops. I don't think it's, I don't think that's going to happen. Um, the question is what, what kind of punishment you can inflict on him, what you can exclude him from in the international arena. And I want to flip this into a question for Jamie, since you follow this closer than I do. And Michael, you and I were talking about this, I think three or four weeks ago, uh, not in the podcast context, but you, but you were thinking that a lot of this was going to be uh Putin bluff. Like he's just trying yeah, to get yeah. enough kind of concessions, get the uh, embassy evacuated um uh, get Biden to say some stupid shit, and then he could sort of like leave with his uh, uh, face saved. Uh, Jamie, I think just uh, I, I'm I I'm, I'm guessing, and I want you to, to to like put some actuality on my guesses. Um, if Putin does much of anything militarily in Ukraine, he's going to get fucked pretty quick, isn't he? I mean, there's going to be people who don't want their country taken over by Russia. That's a military problem that I'm not sure he's ready to solve.
0: I mean, I have to think, having spent quite a bit of time in Ukraine over the past eight years, um, these are not a people who are going to roll over easy, and it's going to be bloody. And I'm not saying that the Russian military wouldn't be able to, you know, march to Kiev if it wanted to, uh, but it would be extremely bloody. And it would be, they'd get bogged down, there'd be guerrilla warfare. Um, it could be another Afghanistan, and and you know it goes back to the question of you know what's the American interest in this? Well, you know Ukraine is a lot closer to uh, Western Europe than Afghanistan. You want to talk about refugee flows? You know millions, potentially over ten million people going into Poland, um, going into Slovakia, going into Hungary, and then what's going to happen if you know is is Poland going to start? supporting an insurgency uh are the are the baltic states going to start supporting an insurgency yes, they would. does that then imply? okay okay <laughs> yes and, <they> then, <laughs> and then they will they will they will okay and then and then are the russians then going to attack targets In, I mean, that's nato territory we're talking about now so this can really escalate you know this can escalate really quickly into something that yes ukraine is not nato they're not we're not sworn to defend them um but it can really you know, move in a in a really uh, bad direction. Where we are on the line, okay? Where there could be circumstances where the Russians might launch a cross border attack into Poland, um, and then and then it's a and then it is our problem. Mm. Then then it is our fight.
1: You know, it's um, funny that because there is the constant conversation um, about you know what is the purpose of NATO? Uh, NATO Cold War is over. Well, I mean, Russian aggression has hit two countries close by that are not in NATO. So there's your answer. Mm-hmm. And when Jamie yeah. says that, will would Russia be willing to do kind of Cambodia-like cross-border raids into a country that is that is allied, No, they won't. And I, I would say right. that the administration was pretty uh, pretty forceful today, I think. I think it was actually today or yesterday – of uh, talking about its commitment to to the NATO charter and saying that an attack against mm. any of these countries would be met with uh, devastating consequences. To say that is nothing, but it. I it, would it, it, to say that is not nothing. It's not, not. nothing. It's not nothing. Yeah, I didn't mean to say it's nothing. Um, so you know, it's a it's a pretty pretty firm verbal commitment. So that's a good thing. But I want to actually be clear about one thing, because the conversation here is not about what the United States should do. Because I think that most of the people talking about this, most of the people talking about it on MSNBC or Fox or on Twitter are mostly morons who know nothing about it and have (laughs) very little interest in finding out about it and couldn't have given two shits about it last year or two years ago. And the point is not to say, I'm speaking for myself here only, and I know Matt, uh, I know sort of generally agrees with this too. The point is not to say that the United States should really get involved. It should really do more. It should give more arms. And that's a different conversation. The only conversation that is being had right now is about what is actually happening in the morality of what is happening when a expansionist power like Russia and a a grievously wounded and uh, psychologically damaged power like Russia is intervening and taking huge chunks of land from a sovereign nation. That is not hard to me. I don't know why we have to have all this throat clearing wow. and saying, no, 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 we're an invasion. I don't, want to, I don't want American boys. Nobody, as Matt said, is proposing this. Yeah. But we can be clear about what is actually happening here and not go into this thing of somebody who has never fucking picked up a book about Russia, never read a book about the Soviet Union, and never read a book about modern Ukraine, telling me that Ukraine's not a real country. That it's not a real, it's, it's not a real culture and it should be back in the, in the warm embrace of Mother Russia. That type of conversation is nonsense. It should be called out as nonsense. And the idea that even mentioning this makes one, you know, some sort of warmongering. Let's put, you know, paratroopers over the skies of Ukraine and into Donetsk or something. That's not the conversation. So if you want to quibble with any of this stuff, be my guest. I always encourage it. And we use the uh, Patreon broadcast to talk about a lot of this stuff where people quibble. But the quibble should not be with what we should do, because that's not even on the table right now. It's a complicated thing and probably a little too boring for this podcast. But just as what is actually happening on the ground, let me tell you this. Ukra- Ukrainians are not shelling. They are not. This is what Russians are saying. They are not shelling these occupied areas, and they are now occupied areas. They are not doing that. Which belong to them. Which belong to them. Which belong to them. And and no one recognizes as, no, you cannot just come in and say, this is mine, and then wait enough time and say, well, it's fine now. It's it's, it's not. No, you commit the crime, and you're a 95-year-old guy who was a guard at Auschwitz, we're still going to put you on trial. You don't get to escape for 60 years. (laughs) Just because it's, you know, eight years down the road when this initially happened, does not make it yours. And now that you've sent this is a big, troops yeah. in is that okay, now we're trying to codify that. And that was the plan from the beginning. I think that's pretty obvious. This happens
0: it happens a lot in libertarian circles, which I know you're both familiar with, where they're if if you're opposed to a particular military conflict, if you're opposed to the United States getting involved in a military conflict, a lot of people just can't end it at that. They can't just end it at saying, Well, America, it's not our business, we shouldn't get involved. They have to come up with some kind of rationale rationale. And so they go out, they go above and beyond, and basically take on the arguments of the aggressor. Right. And so they basically come out defending Putin and saying, actually, Putin's in the right, because the American ally that's trying to get us involved in this conflict, they're the ones who are lying. They're the ones coming up with all these uh, stories of atrocities. But in actual fact, they're the problem. And it's the aggressor, who's getting a bad rap. And you know, you saw this with Ron Ron Paul, uh, you see it with his son, occasionally, you see it with Tucker Carlson. And like, I would have, I would have respect for people who would just come at this from a very um, intellectually consistent position and say, we don't support the United States getting involved in conflicts overseas, period, end of. That's not my view, obviously, it's not your view. But I can respect that if it's intellectually consistent. Where I have a problem is where um, you see this with John Mearsheimer, you know, um, uh, and, and Tucker and, and lots of other folks, where they actually have to make the argument, they adopt the argument of our adversaries. Um, and it's a weird kind of, I don't know what explains it. Maybe it makes it easier for them to make those arguments. Um, maybe it kind of salves their conscience, right? Because, they, if, I mean, to me, if you look very objectively about what's going on right now, it's very clear. Who's, who's in the right and who's in the wrong, okay? Ukraine's not a perfect country, obviously. Have they made mistakes in this? Sure. But at the end of the day, you have one big bully is picking on a much smaller country that is sovereign and is having its territory stolen from it. Um, and perhaps in order to kind of justify your position of neutrality or, or not doing anything you ha- in your own mind you have to come up with these excuses right so well maybe putin has a point maybe this nato enlargement was a, was was hostile uh maybe the russian maybe the ukrainians have been you know too mean to their russian speaking minorities and you come up in it, but then at, at at the end of it you end up basically becoming um, someone who's justifying really horrible things.
1: I, I had a I sit down. The, I think that the... Go ahead, uh, Matt,
0: sorry.
2: Go ahead, go ahead.
1: Well, actually, I'll say this I just because it's it. in the context of what Jamie was saying. I sat down with uh, uh, John Mearsheimer and uh, Stephen F. Cohen. Um, that was about three or four years ago. I was getting, it was an interesting conversation. Um, and We went to a Russian restaurant in midtown Manhattan. And in the conversation, you know, I am somebody that in this situation... And because of, you know, America's recent past and because of a lot of things, I don't believe that there is any military involvement that the United States should 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 offer to anybody in this beyond if somebody who's an ally of us wants to buy weapons and we I'm happy to sell them to them. That's fine. I don't have any problem with that whatsoever. If it it is, let's. You know, the, by the way, to be clear, the American troops that are in that are in the region are in the region protecting its NATO allies or in NATO allied countries. Mm-hmm. That is it. They're not, not going to go walk across the border and say it's time for a fight. So let's stop pretending that that's what's happening. It's not what's happening. So that said, um, when I talk to it's exactly what you're saying when I talk to Mearsheimer um, and Cohen and look, I have some respect for Stephen Cohen because. You know, I, I believe Robert Conquest was right that he was a good historian in some senses, and he was an anti-Stalinist that felt so bad about being an anti-Stalinist that he decided to be a little too soft on everybody else in the Soviet Union, which I don't like. But he made an argument to me. This is a man who, whose wife at the time, uh, Stephen McConaughey, past, passed, was the editor of the Nation magazine, who was in the room, who was sitting a- across at a different table, uh, watching this all of this happen, who made an argument against Pussy Riot and saying, well, you know, they defiled a church and what do you expect? It's like, no, no, can you defend... The editor of
0: the nation? The editor, the editor of the nation was attacking Pussy Riot? No, no, no. This was... He,
1: was, he was. He's married to the editor of the nation. Uh, he was. Uh, he pa- uh, she yeah, passed so, away. Okay. Uh, he passed away. She's still alive. Um, but he is a columnist of the nation. He was attacking Pussy Riot and saying, you know, this is what, you know, and, and, and being very, very soft on Putin. And to your point, like, look, Stephen... I get it. I totally understand your point about about uh, American hostility towards Russia, if you want to say that. I'm not saying I agree with it, but I can have a completely normal and rational conversation. It's not a weird position to take in any way. It gets weird when all of a sudden you believe it is incumbent upon you to stake out that position. One must be a little more sympathetic to the Putin side of the argument and say that everything, I mean, these are people that believe in every CIA conspiracy theory that the church commission wouldn't even entertain yet. When, when you say like maybe the, the Russians, because there's an enormous amount of evidence, maybe the Putin uh, regime solidified its power by blowing up an apartment building. Maybe that's happened. A lot of serious, serious people have made this uh, argument and it's one that is not without a certain uh, amount of very convincing evidence, but they, and that's crazy. I would never believe that that's crazy. And then the next breath you're finding out um, that the United States has done all sorts of bizarre things that rest on conjecture and and hearsay and the rest of it. But yeah, I don't understand it exactly. And I think that Paul Hollander, the uh, historian uh, who taught at the University of Massachusetts, has written a number of books about this, about fellow traveling, and about the psychology of fellow traveling, and people who decided to not only oppose American foreign policy, but actively support the other side in why they did that. I think that that's always worth looking at because it always comes up and it's happening again. Matt, sorry for cutting you off.
2: It's fine. Um, I think that um, maybe a a way that's more generous than how Jamie put it, or at least adds a different wrinkle is that a lot of these people, they start from the position of what is the U S government telling us? What is the political class kind of all unifying to say, And so uh, we can assume uh, we could take the shortcut that sometimes gets us there faster, as shortcuts do, that they're lying or that they're deluding themselves or that enough people um, are talking to them off the record, that they're all kind of pointing in the same direction. Um, and so if you start uh, as a, a kind of contrarian exercise to um, the American kind of foreign policy, what's the blob, right? That's what they call it. Um, that they're, they're exaggerating, they're calling someone else, the great Satan, um, that they're covering up there or they're minimizing their own role in past uh, problems. Um, you can get to some truths a little bit faster. Um, and you can also get really super quick to going exactly to what you said to like, suddenly, you know, you know what, what, what stupid thing is Victor Orban saying right now? Well, maybe, He's the real defender of Western civilization because the American foreign policy consensus hates his guts. Um, And it's like a lot of the stuff is easier to find than all of that. You know, you don't have to uh, there's some, there's something that is so like American centric about it all, which is so weird for people who um, uh, imagine themselves. And I mean that in a value neutral way or depict themselves as, uh, as being anti-imperialist, they're focused on, what they see as the empire, which is the United States. And meanwhile, actual imperialism is happening. It's just, there's no other way to describe it. Um, One way to uh, kind of judge the intellectual seriousness of the argument is see where people have been using um, and defending the notion of the word sovereignty for the last 30 years. Um, And um, you're going to see a lot of Weird flipping going on because for a really long time, especially during the Balkans, also during the Iraq war and during the post Iraq, uh, the Gulf War, and then uh, the period afterwards, the people saying the word sovereignty, the most uh, about us, this is something sacred that we should protect and not violate um, were tended to be China and Russia um, on the international stage, the whatever non-aligned countries that were left, um, but mostly them. And then people who gotten used to criticizing American foreign policy. And it was actually a pretty good critique, especially from the American point of view. Uh, I have argued for a long time um, that we've gone – we have uh, degraded uh, the U.S. Now I'm talking – we've degraded the notion of sovereignty from the point uh, since September of 1990, I think it was, when – and please go look it up – when Gorbachev and George H.W. Bush joint press conference to address the situation – in kuwait said uh, a couple of things well one of them is that it we should establish as a bedrock international principle that a large country cannot just simply subsume its neighbor All right basically that that language um that got a, a bit obscured um in the coverage because of course it's like the wow it's a the enemies agreeing, but also they use the word, the phrase new world order a lot, which is <laughs> probably maybe not the best choice of phrasing, uh, to describe that, but that's an important thing. And, um, and actually America in the cause of not a, not in the cause of the Gulf War at all. The Gulf War was actually a sovereignty restoration act, regardless of what you think about it, regardless of what you think about Kuwait and how much you criticized the Kuwait back in the time. Um, it expelled Iraq out of Kuwait it restored sovereignty to Kuwait. That was the whole purpose of it. Um, They didn't go all the way to Baghdad because that wasn't the job. Um, I think that a lot of American interventions, some of which I supported, some of which I opposed since then, uh, systematically degraded sovereignty. But what of the people who were using that word as a magic talisman? What are they doing now, this week? Are they saying that sovereignty is super duper important? I kind of don't think so. Because sovereignty is getting violated in a way that is not unprecedented, but it is history making and it is awful. And if you don't have the moral imagination um, to acknowledge that and to express great sympathy for the people who are on the butt end of that, as Americans had no problem doing at all in 1956 in Hungary, 1968 in Czechoslovakia, 1981 in Poland, which is more of an internal crackdown. Even 1953 in, in East Germany, right? We all, I mean, look at the bookshelves of all the books that were written. James Michener, people like that after 1956 in Hungary. It like awoke people's sense of imagination. And to see people who have at various times in their lives described themselves as patriotic Americans and all this kind of stuff, um, looking the other way and like trying to take the imperialists side in this, the word disappointing isn't, it actually doesn't capture it. It's just gross, it's fucking morally obscene. You've got to be able to identify with people who are getting subsumed and harassed by a big nuclear armed neighbor and If you can't get there, I'm not sure what we can
1: do. nor do you see any of the Russian embassies in Europe uh surrounded by people protesting. um It doesn't seem to have ever happened or if it has happened maybe in, in small small scale but um these you know these kind of types of actions. Uh, many of which I think uh, deserve to be to be protested at times. Uh, when when taken on by the United States, usually um, elicit a number of protests and people coming out and hyperventilating. Uh, Russia, I think there's some maybe maybe it's just an expectation that this is what is going to happen. This is what they do and what they've always done. But to try, I'm going to transition this slightly, only slightly, because Matt, you said that a lot of people talk about Orban. And I think this is also true in Russia. And if you look at somebody like Peter Hitchens, the opposite of, of his brother when it comes to things like foreign engagements, um, and you look at you know the writing that he's done and things that he's said about Russia, and this is true of a lot of other kind of paleo-conservatives, um, there's a new type of conservative that is saying something similar about Hungary, as, as you pointed out. And people who will shrug and say, yeah, well, I don't really care about the free press stuff. They're really doing battle against wokeism and against, uh, you know, these gays and trans issues or something. I mean, that's the thing that has appealed to a lot of um, religious Psycho-conservatives, not just religious conservatives, but the kind of, you know, weird fringes of First Thing magazine or something, not not just the, I don't want to say it's the average, you know, Father Sirica or something like that. But these are people that say what Putin has done uh, has been admirable in that sense. And that just brings me to something that Jamie wrote uh, about a, f- a friend, former friend, I don't even know what the status is right now, named uh, uh, Sorab Amari. Who I knew at the same time that that you knew, and I haven't seen him in many years, but has taken quite a turn. And you wrote a piece about this for Tablet that uh, created a bit of a controversy. Give me a sense of why you wanted to write that piece. I mean, it's got to be a hard thing in some sense to write about a friend and a former friend. I mean, this is this is a. A classic thing, and I, I don't know why people are outraged by this, I mean, it's a classic thing if, if you look at the alcove one, alcove two, 60s debates of leftists turned liberals, turned neocons, it's constant writing books about each other and sniping about ex-friends and, uh, and you know, changing sides and, and things like that. What provoked you to write this uh, rather long uh, piece about Saurabh?
0: Well, I think he's become one of the most influential Figures on the intellectual right right now, um, and we came from similar places ideologically. Uh, we were sort of on the you know broad center right, you know neoconservative if you want to use that term. Uh, had similar views about many issues. were sort of you know uh, intellectual comrades, if you will. Um, and I also sort of sympathized with a lot of what he was going through in terms of um, being a never Trumper who felt really upset with the whole resistance, mm. you know, like we were, I, I was a very outspoken never Trumper. I still am. Um, and I think we both sort of underestimated just how partisan things would get. I think we kind of assumed, oh, you know, uh, those of us who are opposed to Trump or like, you know, the the Democrats and the left are going to become perhaps uh, a bigger tent. They're going to let everyone who opposes Trump in. Um, And then there were kind of two issues in particular where I think there were kind of wake up calls for a lot of us. One was the Brett Kavanaugh hearings and just the just outrageous behavior of the media in particular, but also some Democrats in the Senate The you know, complete loss of any presumption of innocence, just the the accusations that were thrown without any evidence whatsoever. Uh, and then also Russiagate, which, you know, I don't want to get into a whole thing about Russiagate, but I think we're all kind of on the same page about Russiagate. You know, there were obviously shady, um, inappropriate connections between Donald Trump and Russia. His spoken, uh, his his views on Russia, which, by the way, what he said about Ukraine today or <laughs> yesterday was absolutely insane. Okay. Yeah,
1: to Buck Sexton. Yeah. What did yeah, he
2: say? I, I was uh, um, well, I'll just give you a yeah, ten
1: Well, he, he said he's Putin yeah. Him. He was like he was like yeah. That was some pretty uh, good stuff there. That's a he's a he knows what he's <laughs> doing there. a Good statesman. Yeah. But you know, it's not really <laughs> is, no. I,
0: no. i this is the thing I try. I've said this before. He, everything he says makes sense if you just preface it with Donnie from Queens. You're on the air, <laughs> and like you know, so much <laughs> <laughs> like. I don't think he was actually like I don't I don't and I'm not trying to make I'm not trying to make excuses for him, but so much of what comes out of his mouth it's literally just a guy like watching something and kind of just like, wow, like, wow, it's incredible.
1: Okay. Yeah. He's by the way, of, I listened no- to the clip and it was kind of actually more critical <laughs> than I thought, because he was like, he okay, was, right. he did say, I mean, you just read it and you're like, Jesus. But when you listen to it, he he did say something to the effect of like, he's like, you know, that's a peacekeeping force. That's some kind of peacekeeping force. Like right. they're not going to keep peace with it. Yeah. He was basically saying that no, it's no. it it's, you know, a lot more than a, a little peacekeeping force, keeping force and they're going to kick somebody's ass. And then he basically says, you know, you got to admire the guy. That's basically where he is on everything. Yeah, you got to right. admire the kind of moxie of this guy. He's a good, he's a good he's strategic, he's, he's not, but yeah.
0: He's basically a color commentator on like W-E-E-I. Okay? <laughs> it's,
1: you know, it's such a mass <laughs> reference. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> on the Howie. Well, um, hey, Howie. <laughs> the Howie Car
1: the Show. Line. The, the Weiner Line, yeah, the
0: Weiner <laughs> Line on W-E-E-I. <laughs> Um. Anyway, uh. So so I so I sort of had a similar intellectual journey as Sorab. I didn't I didn't convert to Catholicism, which was obviously a huge part of it. Yeah. Um. But then just sort of seeing someone you know who you're close with, who you've uh, you know, I've I've collaborated with him. We co-authored an article. Um. To see someone change so dramatically, and become one of the most sort of prominent um figures in this new emerging movement, right? The sort of national conservatism or populist conservatism. I just found it, um, intellectually interesting, challenging. And I think the piece, I thought I was quite generous to him. I don't think I was, um, uh, petty or, or rude and we've, you know, we've communicated since I published it. Um, so it's not like, uh, like, you know, our our friendship or re- relationship has been cut off by, by any means. He did
1: take some swipes at you on Twitter, um, though, didn't he?
0: Uh, he might have. Yes, he might have. I don't sp- I try not to spend much time on Twitter these days, yeah. but
1: um, I, I remember yeah. one of the tweets was like, you just wanted everything to be gayer than 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 it was.
0: <laughs> i think that was Raheem kassam oh that was, oh, that was him yeah yeah
1: yeah oh sorry i think yeah. he might have retweeted that, it or something
0: that's fine. i mean that <laughs> that's just
1: fine that's fine took a break from writing his uh intellectual biography of jacques barzan to <laughs> go onto twitter <laughs> and oh, call oh, you a oh. call you a bum boy or something right <laughs> <That> was- <laughs> yes
0: yeah newsflash newsflash <laughs>
1: breaking
2: news (laughs) but do you think that that group um uh is is right now or is going to be um significant or is it more that um there's kind of a desperate need by some people who've been in the kind of intellectual politics game to rush into this uh real world kind of hole that that donald trump burst through the wall of the basic assumptions of how things work. Like I, mean, yeah, I, like I find it. The,
0: yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Well, I mean, you know, and you'll be disappointed to hear this map, but I think on the economics, I do think that they do have room for influence in terms of a more statist, um, you know, industrial policy. Right. I mean, that, that seems to be the way in which there are several prominent Republican politicians moving in that direction. Yeah. Um, so, but on the cultural stuff, I find it hard to see. I mean, uh, then I mean, you look has has the left, you know, overreached on cultural questions. Of course, they have, and you guys cover that often on your podcast. But the notion that you know, sort of a Catholic, um, statist, traditional uh, movement is somehow going to, I don't know, like impose itself on the United States. I mean, look, what was the I had this line in the article that they didn't run, and I think Moynihan will be the only person who gets it. But I, I, I it was it was about you know Sorab's epiphany was basically over seeing uh, you know this this drag queen story hour at a public library in Sacramento. And I said, you know, this is his Kronstadt, okay? It's drag queen story <laughs> yeah. Do you want to explain
1: that reference to your Yeah, the mo- the moment in the Russian Revolution that uh, made people change their minds about the Russian Revolution of the the sailors' uprising at Kronstadt, the famous joke of the person who was at Kronstadt and said, what was your Kronstadt? It was Kronstadt. Uh, yeah, that's... Uh, the. the but that is that is that that kind of moment in which people say, oh, my God, the culture is going to pot and we need to to rush in the breach. And, you know, I think the weird thing about it is that there's no practical politics because uh, Camille and I talked about a tweet of So Rob's wow. the other day uh, on the on the Patreon in which he said something sarcastically about the marketplace of ideas in, in scare quotes. Um, cause I guess that's, that's a bad thing now, but it was like, you know, something that anti, it was about anti woke liberals and it's like how they're good about drawing Mm. attention to the issue, but they don't have any actual policies and they leave it up to the quote unquote marketplace of ideas is that I don't actually know what their solution to these things are. Cause to, to Jamie's point, somebody who's a, you know, wants all, every future Hollywood movie to be an Aramaic is not somebody that is going to win win the masses. And we're in a culture now where I think that the actual solution to this stuff and the actual pushback is that the people that control a lot of the culture are trying to set the agenda, number one. They're failing, number two. And number three, most people don't believe in this stuff. And we've often talked right. about that that um, hidden tribe survey, which needs to probably be updated at this point, two or three years old, of that the number of people who actually agree with the kind of general, quote-unquote, wokeness. I think that was the word that was used in that, in that tweet of SoRUMS. And the number was like, you know, 91 or 92% have no interest in this sort of thing. It was extraordinarily high. The number of... Hispanics who use the word Latinx is like 94% either never use it or have never heard of it. It's like, this is a fringe thing that in our bubbles makes us think that the entire world is being taken over by it. There is a huge, right. a huge influence. I'm not denying that at all. I mean, you see it in ad campaigns. You see it in the corporate yeah. response to the George Floyd protests and things like that. But it doesn't mean that the response that we need to this is some sort of traditionalist you know, religious, like sort of religion, you know, based in Catholicism or something like this, you know, the ideas of First Things Magazine, you know, I read that stuff, I read their stuff, and I try to, you know, make sense of it, and I try to see where they're coming from. I'm not somebody who agrees with them on any of those religious issues, but I just don't understand where they believe these solutions are coming from, and particularly if they think that it's going to be an urbanist future, they're really, really got another thing coming because the marketplace of ideas is a good thing, not a bad thing.
0: Yeah, well, this is where I think the internet plays an interesting role, because it used to be before in this country, if something crazy happened in a different part of the country that you didn't like, let, let's say you were a uh, a Christian homemaker in Kansas, and there was some wild, uh, you know, transgender street festival in San Francisco, you know, you might maybe see a footage of it on the evening news in like the early 1970s but it wasn't you know constantly in your face whereas now because of twitter and if you're very online like all these all these writers and intellectuals are you are constantly bombarded and this goes for the same on the left right like there are all these stories about you know this this school board in tennessee which is banning the book mouse which they're not banning mm. they're just removing it from the curriculum but like every time like some you know school board and like, you know, bumfuck Arkansas does something that, you know, offends that offends the, se- the, 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 sensibilities of like a Brooklyn, uh, writer for Jacobin magazine. It's like, you're, you're, you're confronted with it in real time. Right. And it's just, it's a constant outrage machine. And I feel like before maybe these, um, these dramatic political swings wouldn't have been so dramatic and they wouldn't have been so frequent. Um, because people didn't have Twitter, they didn't have Facebook, and they weren't constantly being – it wasn't – all these provocations were constantly being thrust in your in face. Your and place. there's also
1: the, the idea of repetition, too, that I know that people of CNN really – I mean, Matt and I have this joke of like, when you turned on CNN today – how long was it till you heard January 6th? It's usually about 14 seconds. I think that's the average we've come to.
2: I think it's a single day. Yeah,
1: it, you know, it's like a sprint. You're like, the, you know, his splits the January on the January 6th. 6th is about 14 seconds. It's fucking intense. Or the big lie. Yeah,
2: I mean. If it's, a, if the big, it's or, the or the big lie, lie it's Yeah, it's yeah, yeah.
1: the now. big lie, which they don't realize is an anti-Semitic trope created by the Nazis. But, uh, you know, we talked about it in a previous podcast. Go back and listen to it. Um, the other, yeah, the other thing is like, take for instance, the Canada thing, that it became through repetition, this idea that everyone was flying swastika flags. The only photographed right. one was a guy who had drawn a swastika on a maple leaf to indicate that the government was Nazis, not that they were supporting Nazis. Right. And then that right. became a thing, like literally in Canadian parliament, Justin Trudeau tweeting about it. Everyone saying, well, you know, it's like when you have these extremist truckers, there are right. the Nazi flags and all that stuff. It's like, you just have to keep repeating this stuff. And then the very online people in that echo chamber, will do your work for you and repeat it further and further and further. You get Russia you get all this wild, wild stuff, and you know, of course, it's it's guilty on the, on the right in a lot of ways too. And you saw that at the very beginning of all of these non controversies of the past that that you know kind of exploded into these huge fake controversies. But uh, but you know, it's all over the place, and and I, the online stuff is really troubling.
2: There's a thing. There's an aspect to this. Um, which I have respect for, so Rob, who I've always gotten along really, with, really nice. Um, uh, even as he's going through this this uh, interesting transition, yeah, me too. I, um, I haven't seen him in
1: ages, but I we we always got along uh, very well. Yeah,
2: there's a thing I that he, wrong he and they <laughs> they do um, that we what however you would uh, define that. I wouldn't really put it on this podcast, but let's say we at Reason Magazine or or we who are the the David French's of the world or we, whatever, in the broadly kind of classical liberal lane uh, out there, don't do. And they're kind of right about the analysis in a way, I wouldn't say that we're wrong, but it's just we're separate. And it's this, it, the, the the will to power, The you can see it in their eyes. You know, when they describe, when Rod Dreher describes uh Victor Orbán and I just cleansed that joke uh, from 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 my head before I said it so that's probably good. Um but after he wipes everything off um and uh, oh god. um oh god. Sorry, Rod. it was just it was just sitting there. Oh um no, but like uh, they they can imagine power. They can imagine power and and part of the imagination of power which is in the way that that we don't because we don't want it in that sense. And we're not opportunists also in that sense is that they, I think, understand that more and more people are going to find themselves very suddenly face to face with stuff that they consider to be crazy. And it's not just that they're super online and they're, you know, mashing the uh, refresh button on Twitter or Facebook or wherever they get their crap. Um, It's that they... You know, are suddenly thrown into a DEI session at work. I mean, how many hundreds of emails have we gotten in this I mean, podcast? We could publish from a book people of
1: them, the, the DEI chronicles, yeah.
2: Um. Uh. And and so when that happens, when suddenly it encroaches on your territory, okay. like it's easy to it's a far off laugh. But when it encroaches on when the crazy comes for you from your business from your industry, which is not the media or academia, it's actually like a normal thing that makes stuff, and it comes to you. Or let's say you've gotten involved uh, in politics or your local school board for the first time, and suddenly people are saying crazy things about how you're an awful racist Nazi, this and that, which is pretty rough on someone who's not been used to being described to that and happened to live in San Francisco or Brooklyn or a place where you're probably not a crazy Nazi. Um, that, can, that is a radicalizing moment. I've met so many people in the process of covering schools, and I was just in San Francisco for the recall, um, to sort of describe the moment. When um, they realize that their own, largely their own team, their own side is pointing guns at them for doing normal American stuff or having normal American reactions to things. And they're like, holy shit. And at, at that moment, you've just created a possible radical. And I think what Sohrab is doing, and this I credit him for uh, on one sense, is anticipating um, that radicalization, saying that. Okay, this has happened to 3% of the people now or 5% or 10%. Not that he's ever said this. I'm just – I think there's an intuition that's happening broadly in that part of the world. Um, Whatever that number is, it's going to triple in a year or in, in two years. And when that happens, that is going to create a new politics. And we are going to be there ready for them, not yeah. necessarily with intellectual programs, because actually they don't have very many, if any at all, but with a a, a plug and play set of we're with you, kind of grievances, and we want to hold power, and that's one of the reasons why they look at the people who actually do hold but power. Matt, didn't and that abuse already power? happen like,
1: in the sense with with Donald Trump? I mean, that's where you got Trump in a way of that that was the reactionary. But I, I think that they're in a position now where they're looking at the post Trump world and saying, okay, right. you know, when I went out to did that piece in Texas and the Texas GOP, it was the hardest thing I've ever done. In one way, because anytime you wanted to address somebody and say. This project that you're so invested in failed. They can only say, well, no, it was stolen. It didn't actually fail. We, we, we won. And that was really impossible to actually talk to people because when you want to get to that next question and say, all right, well, you had, you had your four years and you lost— and now, what do you do? Because usually, when a party, you know, transforms that radically and that, that much in, you know, you usually get that second term, right? You're thinking of that second term and you don't, right? I mean, that's wild. I mean, when was the, the last time I mean, you have, you think of like George H.W. Bush and that was after you know, eight years of Reagan too. I mean, that's, that that made a certain amount of sense, but it's, it's a weird thing that they, they got that power, right? And the one thing that I don't know exactly what he and they believe on this, Jamie alluded to it. And it's the idea that they're not big fans of the free market at this point. Let's just put it that way. I think that's a probably, a, probably, you know, uh, an oversimplification, but I think it's probably about right. The thing about it is is we don't have any measures at this point. We have some. But I do believe that the market is actually going to help them in the long run and it's going to vindicate this idea that if you go too woke you're going to go very broke. And that is a, a thing that we see over and over and over again. We're going to look in the long term of what happens after everyone became very political uh politicized after the George Floyd protests. I think that people really didn't want to push back against that because it was too dangerous to say anything. But if you look at like a company that was falling apart under like sexual harassment claims and losing market share is, is Victoria's secret. A good example of that. They got rid of all of the hot models that did that Victoria's secret fashion show every year that they would broadcast on television. It was on television, not because anyone cared about fashion, but they loved looking at hot Eastern European girls who are now being invaded by the Russians, by the way. So let's make sure that we save them because I'm going to start a company that puts them back on TV. That's the first point. (laughs) The second point is they go and they, they say, you know, um, Sports Illustrated swimsuit issues. Like, this is just one example. It's like, it's not, there's a million versions of this, but now they playboy, pull on, playboy put a gay man on its cover. A couple the, well, playboy got, you, you well, playboy got rid of nudity for a while and they realized that that was yeah. a failure and they brought it back. And yeah, if, if they're doing that and you know, they, the, they, they take the hot girls off, they, they put all, you know, like oh, this is regular women. And the last, there was a story last week that, um, they have their first, uh, uh, Victoria's Secret model with Down syndrome. And it's like, you've just, this is true, you've just trapped me by doing that because I can't say anything because you're like, what? You don't think Down syndrome people should w- work or something? Like, no, no, you're just, you're, you're, you're setting me up because I'm just saying that this is such a radical shift in such a short period of time that the average person's not like, oh, we don't want Down syndrome people to have jobs. It's just like, you are doing something for political reasons and you're an underwear company. I don't want everything politicized. Go back to the way it was. The fact that there were attractive people wearing underwear is not itself a sexist micro or macro aggression. I think that's what most people believe. And as this stuff goes and goes and goes, and more and more people do it, because stupid people and stupid companies, you go higher up, you go in a company, this is always true, the dumber fucking people are. They're fucking morons. You get up there, I don't know how they fail up, but they always do. Journalists do it, too. But they get higher, and they're so stupid, and they're like, well, we have to do that, too. It's like, is there evidence that people want this, that people are going to buy your products more because they think that, you know, you have a really big heart and they just want a G-string? What are you doing? The whole world being politicized, when the market shows that that stuff doesn't work, it shows that the market works. And it shows that we don't need this, like, unceasing battle against it. And we talk about it a lot because it's important. But I don't think we talk about it in the sense in this podcast that the world is coming to an end. As a matter of fact, I think the last one that we did, I, I think I ended on a a kind of positive note. It might've been the one where you were when Camille and I did it uh, on our own, but I was saying, I think this stuff is flagging. I think this stuff after this amount of time is going to not change the culture in the way that they think it's going to change it. You know, is no matter how much Nicole Hannah Jones tweets that, that, you know, she's on the winning side of history. I don't think that is true.
2: I mean, they lost the recall in San Francisco by 50 percentage points. Um, yeah, you know, but not and, everyone and voted, people,
1: Matt. So it's not really democratic.
2: No, man. I mean this. This is the year of coming into contact with reality um, in in a secret ballot process. But don't they have um, a ready?
0: Don't you think they have a ready-made excuse for this, which is white supremacy and the Russians? I certainly will trot that out again.
1: But I this mean, is
0: where I think this is where I think the Democratic push on the Party, But the Democratic Party really needs to separate itself or sort of untether itself from this whole kind of in media faculty lounge foundation sphere, right? Like the people whose job it is mm. to win elections need to like turn off the television, get off Twitter. And the
1: opposite is true you know, now. Stop listening. The opposite is true now. Yeah.
0: Well, I mean, yeah, it's the same. Cause that's hurting them because they yes. are in an echo chamber and, and, and when they say these things politically, it, it hurts them. And you know, you can do this stuff if you're a host on MSNBC yeah. or you have a podcast or you're a New York Times columnist. There's no penalty to be had for kind of spouting this nonsense. It gives you market share. But if you if you're Nancy Pelosi or Chuck Schumer, you have to whip votes, yeah, right? Yeah. Or if you're Joe Biden and you, I mean, this stuff actually it 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 kills. You know, you go woke, you go broke. But I don't know if I see that yet. I don't know if I see that divergence happening
2: in the party. He says, I, from I don't Washington, know Washington D.C. Yeah. There's
1: 93%. Yeah, I know. This is, whatever. this is the Syrian election of Washington DC. It's always like Saddam got 94%. He's big, big leader here, big fan of his. Yeah. I mean, good Lord. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, I, I'd be interested in watching Europe as Europe goes. I mean, I'm interested because I think it's slowing down a lot in Europe too, which is another place to look at it. UK is different. I, I've been paying attention to a little bit of this, how it's happening in Sweden and in Germany, and, you know, once they get over there, it's so funny because, like, the the, the kind of crazy anti-American stuff that I dealt with when I lived there, and now their their focus is now on how america is bad because it's imported all of this stuff This <laughs> is like i've had conversations right. <laughs> with before it used to be like you're you know americans are so crazy you sit and like <laughs> get fat and watch tv you're watching uh dougie heuser's a little uh, doctor man who is 12 years old were you fr- were you
0: were you were you friends with carl hungus from the big lebowski <laughs> peter peter storm yeah he's swedish,
1: he's swedish. He's Swedish, down. yeah. Right. It was like flee from the red hot chili peppers and Peter, Peter Stommer, uh who's great, yeah. But anyway, we should, uh, we, we should uh, wrap this up because I know Matt has uh, children who are, uh, what, they want to be fed or put to bed or you have to beat them now or chain I them to the put radiator.
2: Down.
1: <laughs> put down is how we like to... You play. do that to dogs who are sick. What do you, you put them down. All right. Have you met my kids? All right. I've seen you tape one of them to the bed. I thought that was very cruel. Yeah, the, the jumper cables, all that stuff. Yeah, you said, your bedroom is Abu Ghraib, my friend. <laughs> How are they going to toughen I up? Can't make, I can't, can I make those jokes? Is, uh, too soon? I don't think it's too soon.
2: No. It's too late, uh, actually, <laughs> to make that joke. <laughs> it's, it's too late. We never release the terms. Right, well,
1: so. uh, Jamie, thank you for uh, filling in. We're going to have you back on um, when the book comes out. Thank you um thank absolutely
2: and, uh, and congratulations on on thank you, thank you it looks people get ready to pre-order that thing yeah. jamie's been working on this forever talking about it for a long time it's a yeah. fascinating secret history it's gonna it's the book that i'm looking forward to the most this year and i mean that's yeah. oh wow that thank is you. That means the a lot. gayest thank thing you.
1: you've ever said <laughs> wow. and jamie knows what i jamie mean by me that, that because we both grew up in massachusetts what? and that's how mm-hmm. people uh probably still talk there i'm not sure but uh but yeah no I'm very very much looking forward to this book and um it looks like uh something that is going to do I'll just put it this way something's going to do very very well. Um oh, I so, hope so. I hope so. So Thank it's you. it's the it's the okay. book you were destined to write and I've had many conversations about the secret history of gay Washington while in Washington with you. <laughs> so it'll be fun to see it on the page. <laughs> so and uh we have a lot more stuff coming up. We're recording another Patreon episode this week. It'll be our second one this week because um, we forgot about you for a week because um, uh, Camille is moving and having a baby and um, apparently his wife is involved in this too. And uh, we've just been making a lot of plans for the future. We've got some cool stuff we're going to talk to you about in the, in the coming weeks, I would say, Matt, probably in the next couple of weeks. Um, but it'll be That's good. Awesome. Um, I hope. Not, not finalized, but, uh, but it'll be probably pretty good. And uh, other than that, we will see you on the other side of this uh, podcast. boy
2: bye thanks we we know of new methods of attack
0: the trojan horse